Hey, I'm Sailor. It's another episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey. And tonight, we're going to bring it like a room full of rocker girls. But wait a minute. I'm the only girl here. No, 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 no. Fuck that. Fuck that. <laughs> so for the listeners that might be new to the show, we sometimes compare two albums from one artist against each other. We discuss, usually argue, and very professionally debate the merits. And in the end, of course, only one album or artist reigns supreme. Yes, indeed, Matt. And tonight we're actually doing just that. Can you believe it? What? Oh, we are Shut back the front to door. doing an album battle. Oh yeah, kids. And tonight, we're going to be discussing Lita Ford, her music, her career, and we're going to battle two of her albums. And you know what? This is the first time we are going to be discussing a female artist, like the whole show about her, on Metal Rock and Whiskey. And well, me, with the exception of Aretha Franklin, maybe. With the exception of Aretha. Well, that was kind of like a bonus episode type situation. But to actually go through her career and do an album battle, we realized when we did a look back of last year that we have not really featured a female artist on a full show. So tonight we are correcting that. Yes, we are. But before, as always, we get into tonight's discussion, let's talk whiskey. Always a passion of ours. And I think it's Sailor who has the whiskey segment again this evening. Two in a row. Two in a row. I work so hard at this. I know. I felt it was only apropos for you to have this whiskey segment. But first, what are we all... Well, what are the two of us drinking tonight, Ed? (laughs) Oh, for me? um, Well, I feel like this is kind of special. Like Sailor alluded to, we're... um, or said, we're doing our first real female artist album battle tonight. And I got something kind of special here. It's a little bottle, little 375 here. There are only, there were about 400 of these in existence. Mm. It's um, Whiskey Acres Artisan Series. They call it a 5.5 grain bourbon whiskey. And the reason they come up with the extra, that 0.5, is because they actually use two types of corn. So they don't give that second corn a full full point on the grain count there. They call it 5.5. Anyway, it's 50% um, yellow corn, uh, 10% Oaxacan green corn, mm. 10% wheat, 10% rye, 10% oat, and 10% malted barley. Great pronunciation now, on that whole Hawken, by the way. That's a tough word to say. Hawking. Yeah. <laughs> so some notes from the uh, brand. It's um, this was basically an experiment that just went very right. Um, they made how many is it? Three 15-gallon barrels, which they aged for two years and eleven days. Um, the final proof. They proofed it down to eighty-seven proof. Uh, was 124.1 proof at fill, and at once the uh, 
they emptied them, they came out 122.7, which, you know, gosh, I would have loved to have tasted at 122.7. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But anyway, uh, yeah, they used an experimental yeast strain, and um, this was kind of just a let's see what happens thing Mm. they did, and um, turned out really good. Very sweet notes, spice, a little spicier than you would actually imagine for the, the mash bill we're talking here. And um, some really good, like um, some cherry overtones, uh, maybe a little graham cracker. Uh, yeah, just a really nice uh, bourbon overall. And I'm hoping that they can make this into a into regular rotation mm-hmm. uh, eventually. So what does... <sighs> So I'm wondering how much flavor you're getting, flavor difference. The Awakin green corn, like with only 10%, are you really tasting that much of a difference in flavor? Well, I don't really have anything to compare it to, but I do have actually another one of their bottles where they use 100% of their corn part of the mash bill as Oaxacan green. Hmm. And so I can compare that to their normal bourbon where they use yellow corn, and you can tell the difference between that. But that's, you know, the best I can do at this yeah. point. I'm not sure how much that affects um, this particular blend, but um, all I can tell you is it's damn good. There's, really, yeah. Go ahead, Matt. Is there, I mean, you're probably no well, better than me. I'm just trying to find, like, information on the flavor of it. There is there is a line of whiskeys out there from Mexico called Sierra Norte. Uh, it's relatively new. I don't know how far their reach is as far as distribution in the U.S., but it was available to me in New Jersey. Um, and they make three different or four different uh, whiskeys. They, they make one from uh, all Hawaiian corn, uh, one yellow, uh, black, white, and green, I believe. So you get the black corn, the white corn, which all give different taste profiles, obviously. Um and being put on the spot with that, I have notes somewhere on that, and I don't, but I'll post them. I'll post them online if anyone's interested in those when I find them. But um, they're they're different. I remember them being very different. Mm-hmm. So the so, information I can find says that they have a nutty and rich and creamy flavor, which are often lost in conventional varieties. So it's, if you're getting an heirloom, you'll get that difference in flavor, and you're just going to get a nuttier and a richer flavor of corn. Nuttier and a rich. What did I just say? Whatever the hell I richer. just said. Richer. Did I say richier? Richier. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I just I'm I'm always curious because it was such a small amount in there. You know, I just wonder does it really give it that much of a difference in flavor? Yeah, very interesting. Hmm. It's, I want to try that shit. I think they're about they're about like I don't know forty five to fifty five dollars if you find them for a seven fifty. Hmm. So you know not terribly expensive, but moderately priced. Well, I'm drinking my um, whiskey segment whiskey. So what you got, Matt? I have Hudson Manhattan Rye. Ooh. Yes. So freaking good. So freaking good. I have a strange... Well, it's not strange. I have a love affair with New York rye whiskeys. I guess what they call Empire rye now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is 90% New York rye. 
uh, grown within, I think it's 20 miles of the distillery. Uh, 10%, I, I guess they source it from somewhere else, obviously. And it's uh, aged four years in new charred oak American barrel. So it fits that the mold of what they call an empire rye now, which is minimum 75% from New York, minimum two years in new American oak. And like all their other stuff, it's, it's fucking fantastic. So is the, is it not that the grain is called an empire rye now? I, I, they might call the grain empire rye, but it, to call it empire rye, it has to fit those standards. Right. That I knew, but just from the state. Yeah. Oh, so it's not the actual rye type of rye. Because I was under the understanding, and I could totally wrong, that that was also the case. Is that not? That, that might be the case. Yeah, I just, what, what I was, what I knew of it was that it was just oh, 75% had to be from, from New York. A New York rye, got a it. A New York okay. rye, yeah. Okay, yeah, I, was, wasn't, I wasn't sure. Okay. And good, and Sounds like the perfect rye for making a Manhattan. There you go. <laughs> Boom. And I'm, and I'm glad that they... That they pooled together, I guess it was six or seven different distilleries from New York, and actually put a put a name to this because mm-hmm. it, like I said, it's my favorite rye. New York ryes are my favorite ryes, whether it's this one or Staconic or you know you name them, whatever. They're my Southern favorite. Tier. Yeah, they. It's just fantastic. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. So I'm glad that they separated themselves a little bit from the rest of the herd. I, I really like, well, it's fantastic because, I mean, that's, you know, we're going back to original American whiskey history, so that's awesome. Um, it's not my favorite rye, but it's definitely up there for sure. Mm-hmm. For sure. Well, before we get into my whiskey segment, um, so I just want to talk to you guys about where Jake is, because I have some information. Oh, you do? Really? Because I do also. Do you? Yeah. Better be the hmm. same information. He better well, not be lying to I, me. I guess we'll see. All right. I don't know. What do you have? Well, um, he is taking a sabbatical, and um, he is going to Africa, actually. Um, I believe he's going to South Africa, hmm. and he is going to be working on, well, Another big thing is that, uh, you know, he was drying out for a little while. I think it was he was supposed mm-hmm. to be doing it just in November, right? That November dry out. Yeah. And then it lasted into December, and um, he's he's decided he's he's gonna go dry completely, and uh, he's actually getting into specialty water. Oh, artisan- artisanal water, yes. Artisanal water. <laughs> and so he's been visiting different places. Um, that's why he hasn't been on the show the last two times. And so now he's going down to South Africa and he will be um, consulting on artisanal waters because he has, you know, this history of doing barrel and store picks under his belt. And so that's that's what he's doing now that so he's, he's a doing teetotaler. Well picks. He's doing well picks. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well and spring picks. <laughs> Good job, Ed. Nice. This makes perfect sense. Way to pick up it what I'm does, doing, yeah. buddy. <laughs> Matt, what do you what do you, what do you tell you? Wow, it's not quite the same story, although it does have to do with I guess traveling in some exotic locations, but um, completely different. So it is true indeed that he was going through this period of um, dryness, for lack of a better term, until dryness. 
Yes. <laughs> yes. I said for lack of a better term. Okay. <laughs> okay. Until oh, God, until he got whiff of a legend of this missing mysterious Four Roses barrel pick. Um, oh, I think my. it it's in uh, historical text. I think it's like in the Bible or something. Um, <laughs> so he went. He dropped everything and went on a quest to find this historic from the Bible and in, yes, intrinsic Four Roses barrel pick. Um, I mean, he's actually. Um, I've been lying to you guys. He's been sending me photos <coughs> and updates and everything. He actually um, one time he was in Egypt and he fell into a pit of snakes. Uh, trying to find this. Um, he was in a cave looking for it, and a huge Whoa. boulder came after him and kind of rolled and almost crushed him. Sounds and familiar somehow. Yeah, he, oh my yeah I know. He's kind of like, yeah. his getup is kind so, of weird. Like, he bought this new fedora, which looks kind of good on him, and he's got, like, a bullwhip. I don't understand it, because, you know, he, you know, paints and stuff. But, um, I don't know, I guess for the adventure. Yeah, so, I mean, that's where he is. He's uh, globetrotting, looking for this... Mm. Four roses. Would this pick. adventure almost be described as like maybe a raid, or for a lost? He's four looking for roses a lost pick? something, right? Yeah, yeah, he's looking for a lost four roses pick, and I guess he would be a raider. Yeah, possibly yeah. in a yeah. temple. If someone's guarding it, yeah, in a temple, yeah, with booby traps you know? and stuff. Yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. That sounds a little more uh, more adventurous than than sailors. I mean. That's- Jeez. That sounds like some great. shit right there. Damn. Yeah, but I mean, who, I just who knows what's true? We'll come up with some, um, some maybe rose flavored uh, waters. <laughs> <laughs> oh god, this is stupid. Moving on. <laughs> well, wherever wherever <laughs> he is, we miss him. <laughs> we do. He'll be back soon, though. That I know for sure. All right. Well. Shall we get into the whiskey segment? I think we shall. Let's do it. But first, listen to this. Alrighty. So let me find my notes, wherever the hell I put them, to discuss the whiskey segment tonight. I have been thinking long and hard about this, and I actually bought this bottle a while ago and held on to it. I, I didn't hold, I didn't, I drank it and then held on to the rest of it, I should say, saving it for just the right episode. And I think that when we made the decision to do, to cover Lita Ford, it just came to me and I felt like this was the perfect synergy. So tonight, I will be talking about George Dickel Tabasco brand barrel finish. What? Yeah. Wow. Wow. A secret favorite of mine. I did not expect this. <laughs> <laughs> Just like I'm sure it was unexpected that boom, all of a sudden we come out of the gate with Lita. True. So somebody that I know, well, actually a lot of people, but someone that I know from the show grabbed a bottle and actually liked it and had mm-hmm. good things to say about it i poo-pooed the hell out of it when i heard it was happening i was like what the french here we go with like gimmicky bullshit whiskeys so before i get into what i really how i really feel about it 
Let me just read to you a little bit about this whiskey if you're not familiar with it. And this comes straight from the website from George Dickel. They say, for over a century, the legacy of two Southern brands, George Dickel and Micklehenny Company's Tabasco brand pepper sauce have left their mark on the world and their distinct tastes in the memories of people everywhere. These two iconic brands have come together in one bottle to create George Dickel Tabasco brand barrel finish, or Hot Dickel for short. <laughs> or for long, you know. Oh, my God. <laughs> Jesus. Bang. George Dickel Tabasco brand, or Hot Dickel, stands out by bringing a deliciously spicy kick made by hand and finished in barrels used to age Tabasco peppers for three years. Best enjoyed as a shot, they say, with celery, salt on the rim, pickle juice, or an ice chaser. And they say, damn straight, it's a hot dickle. I would not suggest doing it that way, but we'll get into that in a minute. So, newly in her position, Nicole Austin is the new general manager and distiller for George Dickle. This product was already set to come alive before she took the position, but she backed it because she felt it was right for the brand. She felt just like they say, these are two Southern brands that you may not see it right away, but they do have a lot of synergy to them. If you research the history of their companies, a lot the way their branding has happened and the way they've approached the market, they are there is a really good synergy there. It is absolutely true. And Tabasco does use barrel aging. As they mentioned, they barrel age their peppers for three years. So when I saw her get behind it, and I didn't feel that she was getting behind it, like, well, I'm the new GM and distiller. I better say I like it. I'm into it. She actually said she was very skeptical in the beginning, and I and I appreciated that. And she's known to be a pretty upfront, plain talker. So, um, I, but I thought to myself, this has got to be a gimmick. And where will its place be in whiskey? Can it be taken seriously? Like, where is this going to fit? Much like young women in rock and roll, punk, and metal in the 1970s and, and early 80s. the tie-in. Mm-hmm. All right. If you were an all-female band or a female musician in hard music, female guitarist trying to be taken seriously, you're going to be seen often as a gimmick up front. Mm-hmm. So... In fact, let me tell you, this juice is pretty damn good. It does not taste gimmicky at all. And like I said, I was not just skeptical. I think I pretty much just said, what the fuck is this bullshit? Because I think we covered this on a news segment. I'm pretty sure you sent us like a throw up emoji or something. I'm pretty sure I did. Yes. But if you want to have one of the best Bloody Marys of your life, use this stuff. Now... I think we discussed in a previous episode how I only drink Bloody Marys with whiskey in them when I'm able to, of course. Yeah, mm-hmm. I am not a big vodka person. A lot of people have said to me, what the fuck? How, you know, I don't get it. I don't get it. So proof in the pudding is that whiskey and tomato and spice flavor go together perfectly. 
So I decided, so usually I use Clamato or I make my own type of Clamato. And I do that. I save all my pickle and um, olive juices and I put them together and I'll mix that with a regular regular tomato juice so that I'm making my own Clamato type. You get all the brine in there because that's what, that's really all Clamato is. So this is a tip if you want to save the money on Clamato because it's very expensive. Every time you finish off a jar of pickles or olives, save the juice. Put it into a container, put it in your fridge, it'll sit there forever. Hmm. Then add that to regular mm-hmm. tomato juice, like a cheap brand, and boom, there you go. Now, using this, in my opinion, using this Tabasco, this hot dickle, then you don't have to add any more heat to it. So you eliminate, if you if you use Tabasco typically, I use Sriracha typically and horseradish, I was able to eliminate both of those things. And you get your whiskey in there at the same time. Hmm. So to me, it's absolutely brilliant. Um, so this, I got this, this surprisingly kicked my ass. And if you know anything about the history of Lita Ford, the history of the Runaways, she surprisingly to some kicked fucking ass. So I thought this was appropriate for tonight's episode. George Dickel, Tabasco brand barrel finish. Hot damn Dickel. Nice. Awesome. You make me want to go out and and try a little hot Dickel now. (laughs) I want to hear how that hot Dickel goes down for you there, Ed. I mean, I told you it's it's well balanced. It's not, it doesn't tip one way or the other. Doesn't hit you too hard with the spice. Mm-hmm. It's, I like it. I think that was my first fear. I was like, it's gonna be too Tabasco y, yeah. Yeah, like it's gonna take over because Tabasco to me is so, I don't care for Tabasco. I probably should have mentioned that too. It's so overly mm. vinegary that unless you're cooking with it, I won't touch the shit. Mm. It just, to okay. me, the vinegar takes over and kills everything else. Sriracha. You, you can taste so many flavors in there. And so I prefer um, hot sauces like that. So I was like, God, whiskey burns. Then you're going to have the Tabasco and vinegar burn. Like the vinegar is going to cancel out the whiskey flavor, all the beautiful woodsiness of the whiskey. Like what the hell? No. Matt's oh, absolutely I love Tabasco right. and chili, man. Chili with a little bit of Tabasco in there. Oh, Well, sure. You expect that. It's, but yeah. as long as it's not canceling out the flavor. And I think sure. that was my biggest fear. And it does not do that. So you're absolutely right. It's very well balanced. Yeah. 25 bucks, Ed. Cool. Not that expensive. Wow. Yeah. That's not. That's cheap. Yeah. Jeez. Let's get into this discussion. And we can start with a little bit of a timeline. For those of you that don't know much about Lita Ford or don't know everything about Lita Ford, I'm going to fill you in a little bit on her backstory. So Lita Ford was born in London, England on September 19th of 1958. And then when she was in second grade, her family moved to the United States and eventually settled in Long Beach, California, where she grew up. She was inspired at a very young age by Richie Blackmore's work in Deep Purple and began playing the guitar at 11. 
At the ripe old age of 16, which was in 1975, Lita was recruited by Kim Fowley, a well-known Hollywood music scene producer, to join the all-female rock band The Runaways, which was led by none other than Joan Jett. The band soon secured a recording contract and released their first album in 1975. So the legend says this, quote, The band garnered significant media attention, and The Runaways became a successful recording and touring act during the late 1970s. Ford's lead guitar playing became an integral element of the band's sound. However, due to internal conflicts, The Runaways broke up in 1979. Let me correct that a little bit. In fact, they were put through absolute heaven absolute hell and were never given any due respect as musicians and faced so much abuse verbally and physically often by fellow male musicians producers managers booking agents and male crowds they were under almost impossible pressure it did lead to internal conflicts that erupted and they did break up after firing their producer kim fowley in 1979 in addition to the pressures, vocalist and guitarist Joan Jett wanted to shift to a more Ramones-influenced punk rock sound, while Lita and drummer Sandy West wanted to continue playing the hard rock-oriented songs the band had become known for. Neither faction were able to compromise and agree, so that also led to the band's breakup in 79. Following that breakup, Lita launched a solo career. Her debut solo album was titled Out for Blood. It was released in 1983, and unfortunately, at the time, it was a commercial disappointment. She came right out, right back out with Dancing on the Edge in 1984. It achieved moderate success at the time, but her, her popularity began to rise. I think it's funny that a lot of, and I looked up four to five different sources, that they think that Dancing on the Edge was a commercial disappointment because I didn't feel like that at the time. I felt like that was a really popular album, but I find that interesting. Um, so Dancing on the Edge included the single Fire in My Heart, which reached the top 10 in several countries outside of the U.S. And then there was a follow-up single, Gotta Let Go, which performed a lot better, reaching number one on the mainstream rock charts. So again, like I don't understand why they think it's a disappointment, but whatever well are they um, basing that on like what else came out that year or are they the basing fuck it ever knows yeah who i mean because i mean it's 1984 for christ's sake yeah, so i mean competition yeah <laughs> absolutely absolutely and again i mean that's probably it but i mean yeah I think it's easy you, to get lost in that show i think you need to qualify what the disappointment was in my yeah. opinion you know was osborne management <laughs> and, and reemerged with a more radio-friendly pop metal sound then in 1988, she released her most con commercially successful album, self-titled Lita. The album featured several singers, sing singers, I'm, oh my God, I didn't even take my pain pill and I can't speak. <laughs> Fuck. The album featured several singles, including Kiss Me Deadly, Back to the Cave, Close My Eyes Forever, and Falling In and Out of Love, a song co-written by Nikki Six of Motley Crue. The ballad, Close My Eyes Forever, was, I hope, as you all know, a duet with Ozzy Osbourne, and it remains uh -huh. her most successful song ever. It reached number eight on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 charts. I am also surprised by that. I felt like that song was on the radio every five seconds when it came out. Yeah. And uh -huh. it only reached number eight? The video was on, like, every two seconds. 
Yeah, that number eight surprises me as well. Um, for as much radio play and and everything that that got, you know, um, I just I would have expected it to be be at least in the top five. I I expected it to at least reach number one for a couple of days, but because of my injury, I didn't get a lot of time to. Because often I like to research the charts because I can't always trust you know, all the different sources that I'm collecting research from. So I'm going to go back and do that. And if I find anything else out, I will post it. Yeah, I'd love to know what the top seven were. Yeah. I just think that it sounds really strange to me because it was, it was played, I feel like it was played to death for a while. They played it to death. And I Mm -hmm. was, I mean, obviously everybody knows how I feel about Ozzy Osbourne. I was absolutely in love with him and I worship her. And so I listened to it. Then I got sick of it. That's how much they played it. So I don't know. Um, so what I want to know, was this a brainchild of Sharon Osbourne since she was kind of working with Lita at the time? What do you think? (laughs) She's an asshole, but she's no dummy. I mean, I think that's been proven. I mean, of course, she brings her out with more radio-friendly pop, rock, metal. You know, she does a duet with Ozzy. Duh. Of course, if the song could have been dog shit and it would have helped her out, you know, so. Sure. I, I, I think that's a fair assumption to make. Um. And whether or not she takes credit for things in interviews, is it's very difficult to find out. And even though she is credited on albums as a songwriter or producer or whatever, often that's bullshit, too, as we know when we discussed Black Sabbath and Ozzy. So it's very, very hard to find out the truth on some of those questions. Um, so she followed up the success of the album titled Lita with Stiletto in 1990. Stiletto featured the singles Hungry and Lisa, a song that was dedicated to her mother. The album failed to match the success of her previous release. Um, And then a year later, she came out with Dangerous Curves, which featured her last charting single to date, which was Shot of Poison. Her next album was Black on a German label called ZYX Records that didn't do really very well at all. Um, and she then she had a very long hiatus. She stepped away from commercial music and touring from 1996 to 2007. She had gotten married again, and um, she was married to the nitro vocalist Jim Gillette and had two sons and decided to focus on raising her two sons. Now, I don't like to spend too much time talking about um, these artists' personal lives. I think... We've done a really good job of kind of keeping it to the business, although I feel Mm -hmm. like in this case, her personal life affected her career a lot. And I think that's the only time that we've really discussed that stuff. You know, if someone had a long battle with drugs and alcohol or, you know, whatever it was, um, tragedies, things like that. Um, So she she wrote a a book, a memoir, and... um, talked about being in abusive relationship after abusive relationship after abusive relationship. And, um, you know, it seems that this husband, uh, Jim Gillette was very abusive verbally and very controlling. Um, they moved to an Island in the Turks and Caicos after nine 11 and, um, lived there, I think for almost 10 years. And she felt very isolated and very unhappy. And, um, she claims that when there, when, you know, it was, they were getting looked at for a reality show of their own. Um, Cause that would seem like a, quite an interesting life. These two well-known, uh, you know, celebrities move to some random Island and raise their kids there and homeschool their kids. And it's a very, very tiny Island. Um, 
and uh, she came back to the U.S. and was spending time in L.A. to discuss the deal and kind of work on the idea of the production and how it all go down. And she claims that when she went back, um, her husband was absolutely infuriated and turned her sons against her and none of them would communicate with her anymore. And that led to their divorce. So just 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 wanted to mention that because she speaks so candidly in her memoirs about her relationships. And um, for me, in her interviews, um, things that her friends have said and in her memoirs, it seemed that Jim Gillette was very controlling of her and did not want her to go back into music, did not want her to be in the spotlight and touring and on stage. And she succumbed to that for a very long time. Um, and as we all know, oftentimes, if you have a long hiatus, you're forgotten. And it's very, very difficult to make a comeback. Oh, yeah. So in 2008, mm-hmm. she uh, staged a comeback and she reemerged with a new band. Um, and in that band was Stet Howland from Wasp on drums. Um, and they played several warm up, warm up gigs, she called them, under the moniker Kiss Me Deadly. And um, they played the huge festival Rocklahoma in prior Oklahoma at the time. And then in June 2009, she toured the U.S. and Europe with a new lineup. And um, she had former Guns N' Roses guitarist Ron Bumblefoot-Thal, drummer Dennis Leaflang, and deep field bassist PJ Farley. Then she released the album Wicked Wonderland in 2009. And after the album and after her divorce, she came out in several interviews and said, I just wanted to kick ass. I didn't know what was popular or the flavor of the day at the time. I just wanted the music to rock. So I took a lot of influences and a lot of advice from people that I probably shouldn't have. Lyrics are very personal, but that's about it. I wasn't going to come out in sandals with hairy armpits. (laughs) (laughs) Later, she promised to release a more Lita-style album, saying that the 2009's new metal-inspired Wicked Wonderland was much too much of a collective project with her ex-husband, Jim Gillette. So then in 2012, she did just that and released Living Like a Runaway. The album was much more in line with her earlier work, had much more of a Lita sound. And the title is also celebratory, as she had recently um, come back together with a lot of her former runaway band, um, runaways bandit, bandits, bandmates. What the fuck is wrong with me tonight? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Pull it together, sailor. Ah, crap. And then in 2013, Lita was awarded by Guitar Player Magazine the Certified Guitar Legend Award. Pretty fucking cool. And then in 2016, as we mentioned in a former news episode, she released the album Time Capsule, a collection of songs that she discovered on old analog tapes from the 1980s featuring recordings she'd made with Billy Sheehan, Gene Simmons, um, and a whole bunch of other people, Dave Navarro, um... And also in 2010, the movie The Runaways came out. So this was a major Hollywood production. Um, and Lisa was portrayed by Scout Taylor Compton in the movie The Runaways. Um, but she really wasn't featured much in the movie. And I remember watching it. And first of all, I hated the movie. I thought it was fucking garbage. Hollywood crap. And I don't like the girl who played Joan Jett, whatever the fuck her name is. She looks like she's always <laughs> watching. Stewart. Her. She looks like she's always walked through a fart. And she's got that, like, you know, like, lips and, like, I don't know. I call her fart face girl. <laughs> I just don't care for her. And I don't think she had any of the spice and electricity that Joan Jett has. She was, ugh. And and to just, like, to leave Sandy and Lita out of the movie so much 
when they were such a huge part of that sound was bizarre to me. It focused way too much on on the fact that Joan Jett was a lesbian and all that shit. Like, who gives a flying fuck? So anyway, I hate that movie. Well, like you said, Hollywood. Um, so Yeah, Hollywood yeah. eyes. Yeah. There's a documentary that was done in 2005 – um, and it's called uh, Edge Play, a film about the Runaways. And all of them speak pretty candid about their time in the band. Um, they allude to, they don't outright say it at that time. Um, they talk about the verbal and sexual abuse that they all endured um, by Kim Fowley, their producer and their kind of handler, manager type person, I guess you would call him. Um, since then, there has been allegations of rape. And a lot more serious shit. And since this documentary came out, they've come all come back together and kind of um, settled a lot of differences in the past. So if you go back and watch the documentary, I'm not sure how accurate it really is because they, I think they were still holding a lot of resentment. The Runaway movie hadn't come out yet and they didn't really, I don't think they really had a lot of time to process it as a whole. So I don't know. Take it with a grain of salt, I guess is what I'm saying. Okay. Um, but in 2013, Lita did reunite um, with all of her former Runaways bandmates that she was not still in touch with, um, with uh, Sherry Curie and Joan Jett. And um, she said it was a really, really great experience. And then her and Sherry uh, recorded a Christmas single um, that was uh, Profit for Charity. So that's pretty much Lita Ford. Um, my... So a, a, another thing that I just want to touch on um, that I find interesting, and I'm going to say this because this discussion came up a little bit in a uh, one of the episodes of Pretty Good for a Girl. That's um, the other podcast that we have. And uh, it, it's on the discussion of feminism. And I felt it was important to bring this up because I think a lot of men and women struggle with what they think feminism is. So let me just read to you some things that she has said. In an interview, she was asked, these days you're often referred to as a feminist icon. What do you make of that? Her response is this, I am totally not a feminist. I don't know why they call me that. I guess because I broke the mold and kicked down the door for women who play rock and roll, but that doesn't make me a feminist. Uh, yes, it does, dumbass. It just, it's just not who I am. <laughs> I'm just a musician. I wanted it to be okay for girls and women to play. But it wasn't like, God damn it, why isn't there a girl on this bill? There should be a girl supporting me on this show. Sometimes it gets to the point where now they're doing that on purpose. Oh, there's Lita. Let's put a female act to support her. And it gets to be too much because I don't want to be labeled as a feminist. Not that there's anything wrong with it. It's just not who I am. I'm just a rocker chick that opened the door and carved the path and helped <laughs> make the way for others. She just doesn't want to be labeled. Here's another quote. I think the runaways carved a path for these women. Obviously, if you look at some of them, they almost look identical to us, which is great. I'm very happy about that and glad that there's more women today in the rock scene. But I think the runaways carved the path and now the other girls get to walk it. And I'm sure they still have their ups and downs because it's a man's world. It always will be, I think. And us women, we have to stick together. So it's a challenge. But I love a good challenge. Let me just read you the actual dictionary definition of feminism. It is the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. Do we all we all get that based on the equality of the sexes. Mm -hmm. So I think this is something that can often be really indicative of 
women that don't really understand the definition of feminism. In everything that she said, in both of these quotes, which is why I took these two, she is qualifying that she is in fact a feminist icon, that she is in fact a feminist, and that in fact feminism is still something that we all need to fight for. When she says, I'm sure they still have their ups and downs because it's a man's world. (laughs) It will always be, I think, and us women have to stick together. So it's a challenge. I I just find it so interesting that women like Lita Force still don't understand. I think she's getting a piece of it because she realized that they carved a path for other women to have to be seen a lot more equal in hard music. Um, I don't know. That that just sticks with me. Uh, I I, I just find it bizarre. I think the key word there is advocate because I don't think she sees herself as advocating necessarily. You know what I'm saying? Um, sure, sure, like, no. Like, yeah. And I think that's the mistake that people make. Oh, I'm not yeah. out in the streets fighting women's rights. But we all know also that a lot exactly. of people yep. assume the definition is, oh, I'm a feminist, that means I don't like men. Which is absolute bullshit. It is just about being seen as equal. Being equal, experiencing equality. That's all it's about. It actually has nothing to do with the like or dislike of men. That's irrelevant. It's just about equality and if you look at some of the footage if you listen to some of the stories some of the shit that they had to go through and that she went through in her first band it was unbelievable they had bricks thrown at their faces and heads on stage by men they were told by other male musicians that they would play shows with they were so it was so unbelievable some of the shit that they went through um the discrimination that they suffered um and the just the out and out abuse um they were on there there's footage and i can't remember which of the documentaries this is on because i just watched the joan jet the new joan jet movie which is mm-hmm. fucking fantastic by the way um okay good and she talks a lot about this um one of them you they I don't remember if these guys were opening for them or they were opening for these guys, but one of them, they're on stage playing and they keep interrupting them. Oh, I think, why don't you just get down here and suck our dicks? That's all the chicks are good for. Put down your guitars and suck our dicks. Shit like this. Their shows would get interrupted. The other musicians would unplug their cables. I mean, just insane stuff. And they were always concerned about bodily harm. Um, Lita and Sandy were known to be pretty tough and would fight back, but nonetheless, they were all in danger all the time. I just want us to take a moment and consider that, that these women's lives and physical safety were in danger just because they wanted to get on stage and play some music. That's all they were doing. That's it. It's hard to imagine that nowadays. I mean... Granted, I was alive during this time, but I was very, very young and were kind of oblivious to to what was going on in that realm. But uh, looking back on that, it's just like, geez, how could people be so ignorant? It, I mean, this is still, and again, when I interviewed the band Itchy Kitty, and this band is fronted by two females, um, they have a similar thought process that Lita has, and that's why it kind of stuck with me. You know, and they're much younger, and um, I, I just find it interesting that there's still this dilemma with the term feminist or feminism, and that, you know, the fact that they have to say, 
you know, we don't want to be seen as a female-fronted band. The reason they're saying that is they feel that they are being called out for that, whether it is a positive or a negative. They just want to be mm-hmm. seen as a band, regardless of what genitals they have. Mm-hmm. But in, but that's the point, is that we're still not there yet. Because if we were, it wouldn't need to be a discussion. I think it's a huge part of... It's a huge part of these artists' lives. The way their careers were shaped, the success they had or didn't have, and the type of music they made. In my opinion, I don't know how you could discuss... Um, how dis- how how could you discuss Lita Ford's career, in my opinion, without this coming up? It would be like, how the hell could we talk about Metallica without discussing the fact that Cliff Burton died in a bus accident? Because it forever changed their music. They mm. were a, a different band before and after and made a huge impact on them personally and, and in their career. And the same thing happened here. So um, that's why I felt like it was very important to bring up is I think that, I mean, we know that the careers of these women were stunted early on. Um, watching the Joan Jett movie, they could not get a freaking record deal in the U.S. They could not. They had such a hard time just booking gigs. Oh, we don't want a bunch of chicks on stage. Imagine if they had just been able to operate like any other band that was starting out at the time. How yeah. different would their careers be today, I wonder? I, I just wonder how different that would be. And then when she came back in the 80s... Um, Take a quick Google of the album covers and some of the promo posters. And if you, Ed, I don't know if you remember the Kiss Me Deadly video. I mean, this was full on. There's one of them. She's completely nude and just her guitar covering her. Like, you know, the naughty bits. She comes out of the gate with sex. It's full on sex cells. And I think had she, if she didn't do that, I don't know if she would have been as successful and that's super fucked up but yeah some tells me that wasn't her her idea to begin with i know I exactly so. how that went down exactly and i i don't think so and i think that because at the time i think it was still very difficult for a woman to be judged judged just on she's a fucking amazing guitar player by the way oh yeah i, I mean was she yeah, judged on just to these that? two albums I was blown away by some of these songs on here. Yeah. And, and you know, I think that now, if she were to be coming into her own now, I would imagine that she wouldn't have done a lot of that. Oh, yeah, definitely. It would be a completely different game. I think it would now be very different. If she was a new artist on the scene, for sure. Yeah. She, would, she would have been able to be judged on her musicianship more than her looks. Mm-hmm. Um, if you look at, so as I was doing research and scrolling through interviews, the interviews are, are so interesting. The questions that the press asked. So I was looking at runaway interviews. So they're teenagers at the time, and this is in the seventies and then the early eighties, the questions they were asked had fucking nothing to do with music. Rarely were they ever asked about music during the runaways period. It was, mm-hmm. what do your parents think of this? Do you have boyfriends? <laughs> Are you married? Are you a lesbian? Do you all have sex with each other? My do you gosh. have pillow fights naked? I'm not even fucking <clears throat> kidding. It sounds like the uh, the question, like the what led to the Barracuda, the Anna Nancy Wilson yes. from Heart. Yeah. Yes. Exact kind of the same kind of stuff. The inspiration for Barracuda was 
a, a reporter asked them, do they make out? Yeah. The fuck? Fuck you. That's what I would have said. I would have said, fuck your face times 10 and go die somewhere. Ask me about, especially, come on, Nancy Wilson. Ask me about what type of guitar I play with. Ask me about my skills. She has fucking skills. Okay. Uh, the voice on Ann Wilson. And that's what mm-hmm. they're asking. And you see that in Lita interviews in the early days as well. And it's still there now. They Everybody wants to know about her husband. Everybody wants to know about what it was like being in the runaways and the infighting. Because they were chicks. Of course, they had to be infighting all the time. Oh, Did sure. you sleep with Joan Jett? You know, did you screw any of the girls in the band? This this is the question, not, oh, you know, you're getting inducted into the Heavy Metal Hall of Fame or whatever the fuck it's called. Like, you're actually a really great musician. Talk to us about, you know, how you wrote these songs. Talk to us about, you know, that, no, it's still a lot about not the music. Mm-hmm. Not that the guys don't get asked silly questions like that, because people do want, they are curious about who these people are other than being musicians, but you find it a lot more prevalent when it's a female musician. Oh, yeah. That's why there are shows like ours where we will talk about the music. God damn right. Hell yeah. And I'm so happy that they, you know, obviously you said, you know, it's been 40 years since a lot of those interviews happened. And, you know, they, you know, now, nowadays, at least the platforms exist where they can tell their stories. And all of this other stuff, this garbage stuff that we've been talking about comes out about how they were treated, um, about how they were marginalized. And, you know, podcasts like ours where they can go on and they can tell their stories and talk about books that they've written. And it's good that that stuff can get out to the masses so they know – so people – the casual rock fan, the casual metal fan knows exactly what they went through. Um, because everything Sailor said is completely true, and uh, it's it turns my stomach absolutely turns my stomach. Some of the stories that they've told over their career about how they were treated, and yeah. you know, being the lot, I mean, few of them were almost victims of rape, but they were able to fight off the men, and some of them were not. They were not able to fight the man off, unfortunately. So, you know, and it was I just can't imagine. You know, you're having bricks thrown at your head, which can fucking kill you just because you have a vagina and you're playing music. Yeah, it's nuts. And yes, we've come a ways from that, but not far enough. Nope. So before we get into our album battle of the night, let's take a quick break so I don't pee my pants. Sounds good to me. Refill our glasses. And you know, the cool thing, guys, I just realized is this is going to kind of be a companion piece to um, a show we're going to do on Pretty Good for a Girl. We're actually going to feature The Runaways and Joan Jett. So again, we'll be talking a lot about the early days of The Runaways and Joan Jett's career and Lita um, and the other girls in the band. So these these will kind of go together. I think that'll be really cool. This will be a good segue into that. Absolutely. All right, let's take a break. While we are in our break and I'm peeing, enjoy Close My Eyes Forever. I just felt like a DJ. All right, and we're 
we're back. So now it's time to start the battle. Dun dun dun. Uh, yeah. Let's Ready for this. this one. Oh All right. yeah. So let's first start with Dancing on the Edge. So uh, Dancing on the Edge is the second solo album, as I mentioned before the break, by Lita Ford. It's also her last release with Mercury Records before she left to go to RCA. Um, this album features Lita's new backup band made of drummer Randy Castillo, who later played, as you know, for Ozzy and Molly Crew, Alda Nova on keyboards, and featured the bassist Hugh McDonald, who is currently the bassist for Bon Jovi on Dancing on the Edge. And it surpassed the success, like I said, of her debut Out for Blood in both sales and airplay. Um, her videos for the singles, Gotta Let Go, um, and Dress to Kill were featured in very heavy rotation on MTV. And um, Dress to Kill uh, featured a cameo by her then-fiancé, Tony Iommi. Um, did you guys know that, that they were engaged? Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it didn't sound like it was a very good situation, but anyway. No, it was um, not. No. Ford did heavy touring and support for the album for most of the year of 1984, and uh, she did a pre-Headbangers Ball concert special for MTV. I remember that very, very well. I didn't until I was doing research. I'm like, oh, my God, I remember that. Um, the album reached number 66 of the U.S. Billboard 200. And it uh, resulted in Lita's first nomination for Best Female Rock Vocal Performance at the Grammy Awards in 1985. So, I mean, that's a damn, that's a damn good start, I think. Um, let's go over the song list real quick. We've got Gotta Let Go, Dancing on the Edge, Dressed to Kill, Hit and Run, Lady Killer, Still Waiting, Fire in My Heart, and Don't Let Me Down Tonight. Who wants to start? Oh, I'll start. Um, first of all, I'll start by saying, I'm ashamed to say, up until I listened to these albums completely through my only i only knew lita ford by kiss me deadly and close my eyes forever the only two songs i could have named and was familiar with but dancing on the edge this was a surprise oh my gosh this album kicks ass i love it i listened to this it grabbed me right away her guitar on here she was shredding. Uh, the song Dressed to Kill, I think, was probably my, the standout one to me. That was awesome. Um, yeah, this is a song or an album that I would definitely... Uh, I could put into rotation in my uh, music collection, for sure. I was very uh, pleasantly surprised. And yeah, I will continue to listen to this one, for sure. Matt? You know what's so amazing about this, Ed, is that I couldn't disagree with you more. <laughs> wow. Okay, okay. Jake. <laughs> Matt right, Chandler, I'm going to separate this a little bit because I think that, and, and this is one thing I couldn't get past when I was listening to this album. If you take Leader Ford out of this album, um, aside from what she does on this album, and she's great on this album. She is fantastic. I just wish she had a better band behind her on this album. Because I feel that it you could have put anybody in there and it's any cookie cutter 
80s glam album. Hmm. It just really is. And that's what I was thinking from song to song to song. Um, it has those, you know, not really powerful riffs, but it has the catchy hooks. Um, it has the groove. And it, it's a shame because I really wanted to like this album because of how good she is. But I, I, I make it a kind of akin to the when we did Pantera and we were talking about the early Pantera stuff, mm-hmm. like, like mm-hmm. the Glamterra. And how good Dimebag was on those albums, but the rest of the band was garbage. And that's kind of how I kind of feel about this. It's just a cookie-cutter 80s glam album with a very talented singer and guitar player. Unfortunately, I just couldn't get past the other musicians on this album. And how all the songs kind of ran together to me anyway. So that's my two cents. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, I I love this album. To me, it is a perfect moment in time. It's to me. This is what it sounded like in 1985, 84, 85. Well, when did this come out? 85, right? Yeah, 85. 84. Yeah. No, 85. I think it was 85. Right? So you're already seeing the generational difference here. <laughs> you are. <Anyway>. Yeah. <laughs> I I think that this just, this is what, you know, it sound. I don't know. Like, I mean, we called it metal at the time, you know, hard rock. I just think it's, it's a great album. Um, yes, her band could be better. Definitely. Um, and I know this is going to sound super fucked up but i've been in this industry and i have had discussions um with some of these with with certain producers and with musicians and and you know a lot of times people will say like look i just didn't feel like i had to bring it all the way for this project you know i i kind of i kind of just phoned it in for this project or you know whoever was putting whatever together just didn't feel like you needed anything better than that. And I think that I think she fell victim to that on this album, in my opinion. Fair enough. Um, She is far superior in her musicianship to the people she is playing with. Even Randy Castillo at the time. I don't know if it's because he was young. I don't know if he just wasn't into the music. I don't know if he just wasn't inspired, but if you listen to, listen to randy castillo on this album and know what he goes on to do it's two different drummers in my opinion oh yeah okay um so i think i I think that would be my only negative comment about this album is that um i i will totally agree with you on that but it was a it's it's a fantastic album for the time for sure now did he play Um, on did he play on ultimate sin was he on ultimate sin with ozzy I don't right? remember. I don't feel like he was, but maybe he was. I can't remember. Um, Isn't that one of the bands he was in? Yeah. Was yeah, in. but I don't know. I thought it was later. I could be wrong. We'll have to look it up. Yeah. Um, but for an album as old as it is, um, yes, I was. This was like prime prime rock music listening years for me, mm-hmm. but. A lot of the albums I like from that era are primarily associated with the memories of the era, and that's why I love those albums. Take an album like this, it's going to go one of two ways. 
it's going to be either I love it or, oh my gosh, this didn't hold up over time. Yes, yes. Um, which we'll discuss in the next album. But anyway, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but this the fact that I can come listen to this album cold for the first time and really get into it, to me, says a lot about the album. Yeah, so um, to answer your question, Matt, Randy Castillo, it's the, the first album he did with Rosie. What? Rosie. With Ozzy. <laughs> there I go again. Again, folks, no um, pain meds yet. <laughs> I'm actually in a shit ton of pain. That's probably why. Yeah. Um, it, it was Randy Castillo. There, there are several things. One, like I said, maybe he just wasn't into this and he was more into that. He's also but you're right, two different fucking, drummers, man. <laughs> fucking Ozzy Osbourne versus Lita Ford. He may not have given a shit. Yeah, yeah. You know, he may have just been like, I'm getting paid to do this. This is what I'm going to fucking do right now. Yeah. I mean, it, everybody's human, you know? I mean, it is what it is. But they're two different drummers. You know, it sucks for her. Yeah. Um, Only all right, two, two years apart, too. <laughs> yeah. The albums, yeah. Let's talk about um, the album, which is titled Lita, 1998. So this is her third solo. I said 88. What did I say? You said 98. I said 98. Did I? Play that back. Let's talk about um, the album, which is titled Lita, 1998. Okay. See what happens when you almost cut off your own (laughs) finger? Okay. This is 1988. (laughs) (laughs) this is the third studio album by american rock singer and guitarist lita ford titled lita (laughs) lita does that help (laughs) as in leet originally released in february of 1988 (laughs) (laughs) all right it's her first record for rca um, unique New York. New unique New, New York. York. <laughs> unique New York. And this is her first album with supervision of her new manager, fucking asshole Sharon Osbourne. <laughs> um, <laughs> so Sharon, uh, <laughs> Ozzy's back in the studio. Um, so the so what the one thing Sharon did that was smart is she brought in. Um, Don, I always, I can never pronounce his name right. Nasoy, Nasi, Nasoy, I don't know. And Myron Grombacher. And they were, um, the rhythm section of Pat Benatar's band. They, she brought them in to record for her, but they didn't do the touring. Um, I think that was a very good thing that, that she did with that. Um, this album reached 29 on the, um, U.S. Billboard 200 and produced major hit singles. Close My Eyes Forever, like we said earlier, the duet with Ozzy, and Kiss Me Deadly, which peaked at numbers 8 and 12. Again, we really need to look that up because that seems bizarre to me. Um, Kiss Me Deadly has been named the 76th best hard rock song of all time by VH1. And um, Close My Eyes Forever, interestingly, is featured on the video game Karaoke Revolution Presents American Idol Encore. Um the songs on this album are Back to the Cave, Can't Catch Me, Blueberry, Kiss Me Deadly, of course, Fallen In and Out of Love, Fatal Passion, Under the Gun, Broken Dreams, and of course, Close My Eyes Forever. 
Who wants to begin? Well, I started last time. I'll start again this time. All right. As I alluded to in my last discussion, this album is pretty much case in point of a point I had made earlier. Um, Kiss Me Deadly and Close My Eyes Forever. Love those songs. But I'm kind of wondering now if I would have come heard those songs for the first time now, if I would still have the same feelings about them. They are tied. I maybe not kiss me deadly. Anyway, like I said, they're great songs. I love them to death. Okay. But the rest of the album, some things do just, just don't hold up over time. Um, to me, this, the heavy synth, put throughout this album just it feels so dated Hmm. and i just can't get over that for some reason it just bothers me when i hear it um her guitar great but i kind of feel like matt did on the when the way he talked about the other album is like she's great everybody else the keyboardists and everything is like uh i don't know it's it feels almost too they're trying to just put a couple of toes into the pop world there too, mm-hmm. in a, aside from rock. You know what I'm saying? Um, and I think they just went a little too far that way. Um, it's like you need to stick to the rock. Um, and again, the synth was just way too synthy for me. Um, yeah, I just, this album just didn't do it for me. As a on the whole, okay. Ed, you know what's amazing? What's that? Is that I completely disagree with you. Oh my gosh! <laughs> to a point. <laughs> to a point. To a point. <laughs> so let me say something about the oh. about the elephant in the proverbial proverbial elephant in the room here, and that's what you Do said: it. is synth. Sometimes it works. Van Halen circa 1984. Yes, it works. Perfect example. It oh, fits. Work. It weaves in and out of the songs. It's fine. Sometimes it's not necessary at all. And on this album, if you take that out, I would love this fucking album. I would love it. It doesn't need to be in there. It does nothing for the songs, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. If you just let the band play and you let her do her thing, which she does her thing better than she did on the last album. Mm-hmm. Um, songs are faster, heavier. Her solos are better. She sings with a little bit more snarl, which I like uh, in some of the songs. Um, you can see some progression there. But I think, like you said, Ed, the synth just kind of kills it. And I think if you just completely did away with it, it does nothing for the music, doesn't add to it. Um Except maybe make it more listenable for the masses, I guess, was the was the thought process behind that. Uh, but yeah, you, you don't need it here. You don't need it. And I, like I said, I want to love this album. It would be a great rock album if not for that. But mm-hmm. I still like it better than the first one. Okay. Yeah. And I have a question. Yeah. Do you still listen to Rat? Yes. Do you still listen to occasionally? Not a lot, but occasionally I will. Yes. Bon Jovi. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then, what's your problem with the synth? 
What's your problem with this album? There I is, tell right I don't there. have a problem with it on its own, but it's just the for some reason this album it bothers me. And again, like I said earlier, I don't have any good memories or anything. T- I don't have anything invested in this album. It's coming at me fresh, and it's just not resonating with me now. On on new ears, mm-hmm. you see. Well, I think what's interesting about this album is, and and her career, and I think this is, um, again, I mean, she could still. Well, let me first say this. I think that. Unfortunately, her legacy right now is that she has, I don't think she has ever played the music she really and truly wants to play. Um, Sharon's Vision was a rock pop album for all of her artists at the time. She knew that's what was getting radio play. She knew that's what was making and that's what was charting. And -hmm. that's what people were into at the time. And she decided that was going to be her niche. And it was her niche, and she did very good at it, and that's what happened. Um, Was it her niche or her nephew? (laughs) (laughs) Stupid. Stupid. Dad dad joke. That was a bad dad joke. Continue. Um, When she was in The Runaways, they were playing, you know, uh, glam rock, and she wanted to play Sabbath and Deep Purple. That's what she was originally inspired by. That's what she loved, the kind of music she loved to play. Um she when she came you know she comes out with her solo albums she's listening to the people that are telling her this is the type of music you need to play you know this is what's going to be popular you're you already have strikes against you because you're a chick and nobody wants to fucking hear a chick you know chick guitarist playing metal and uh then she has influences from boyfriends and husbands i mean when you record an album with tony iomi who do you think is going to be calling the shots and then it was never released, you know? I doubt it was her saying, this is the type of music I want to play. Will you just be a musician on my album? I have a fucking feeling that's not how it went down. Um, she wasn't in charge with the Runaways at all. Um, it was really Joan Jett's band, you know, and that's okay. That is that is what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, then she's got Sharon's influence, and we all know what that means. doesn't matter what the fuck you want. If you're under Sharon's thumb, you're going to do what Sharon says, and you're going to play what she plays. Then she comes back after her long hiatus, and she's married to a control freak who's also a musician, and says, no, you need to play new metal, because all the kids are listening to new metal today. And she probably knows the fuck all about new metal. You know, she even said, I don't even know what's popular and what kids are listening to. I've been on a fucking island for 10 years, which is, it was true. She said it herself. So then... She comes back again with another album, and it's more Lita-esque, meaning what Lita made in the 80s that was popular. Is that really what she wants to be playing? I don't think so. That's just my opinion from things that she has said herself. Um, although this album was a hit factory, I have a hard time uh, deciding. I had a very difficult time deciding which album I prefer because Kiss Me Deadly is one of my favorite songs from the 80s. I have always had it in my 80s rotations, my 80s playlist, you know, playing it at 80s parties, doing it. Mm -hmm. I've done it. I've karaoke'd Kiss Me Deadly a million times. Um, 
I covered it with one of my early bands when I was just a kid. I love that song. And Close My Eyes Forever, love that song too. However, I do think that Dancing on the Edge is a better album. Um, so, huh, can I live without... I, I mean, Dress to Kill, I think, is one of her best songs ever um, off of Dancing on the Edge. But can I live without Kiss Me Deadly and Close My Eyes Forever? No. Do I think that Dancing on the Edge is a more rockin' album? Yes. What do I do? I don't fucking know. So I'm going to be the tiebreaker tonight. <laughs> <laughs> so, give me your votes, gentlemen. Ed, you go first. Well, if I wasn't clear enough between the way I feel about these two you albums. You just have to say it officially. Dancing, or dancing, dancing. on the edge. Okay. And Matt. Yep. Well, despite the keyboardum of the second album. Keyboardum. <laughs> yeah. Love it. Yeah. Um, I still have to go with Lita because I think she's better on that album. And the band is better. The sound is better. So I have to go with Lita. I think I'm going to have to agree with you, Matt. Oh. I just I can't do without Kiss Me Deadly and Close My Eyes Forever. I mean, if I could create the ultimate album, for me, it would be... I would put Dress to Kill, Kiss Me Deadly, Close My Eyes Forever with Fire in My Heart, Still Waiting, and Hit and Run. That's but this what isn't a battle about... Which album has the best two songs? This is about which is the better album. I know, overall. but I I think I think Lita's a better album stylistically, and I think it's a little more developed. <laughs> okay, but you, well, that's okay. That's yeah. good. That, that's it. It didn't sound like it sounded like you were arguing that the only reason you liked Lita better was because of those two no, songs. No, those gotta are be more than that. No, okay. but we've always done that. That's the, fair. But can't like fair. when we did Zep, we yeah. said, like, well, can you live without X and X song? Shit. No, I can't live without those songs. Gotcha. And those All songs right. are on. The, and sometimes that's the deciding factor. You got to take it down mm-hmm. to certain songs. Cause if I choose this album, that means those songs from the other album goes away. So how do you make that decision? And sometimes that's how it goes down. So I'm going to go with Lita. Okay. So Lita wins. And there you have it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cheesy that was album fun. cover and all. Yeah. <laughs> cheesy. I mean, signs of the times, all man. cheesy, please. I think they're True, all cheesy. True, but that one especially just kind of, Well, it's I, Sharon. It's looking ugh. like the one thing she doesn't have is the visual. I will I give mean, her that she's good at saying, if you want to make hit records, not if you want to make good records. If you want to make hit records, right. here you go. Uh, and I will get better musicians for you and better sound and production. Okay, fine. But as far as the visual goes, under Sharon's tutelage is some of the worst, cheesiest visual crap. I mean, crap just look at the mid-80s Ozzy album covers, man. Just look exactly. at Ultimate that's Sin, I mean. man. I mean, yeah, that's what <laughs> like, I mean. Yeah. Here, look at my cleavage. <laughs> All right. That was fun. That was fun. Yeah, it was. Yeah. That was a good time. Yeah. Now I've got another album to listen to now. Yes, you do. Oh, that was a great discussion. And if you enjoyed that, please tune in next week or we'll have more discussions. And uh, yeah, actually, we'll be discussing um, our one year anniversary. That's right. 
That's right. I don't think we've, we talked, we mentioned it in the news, but I just want to make sure I brought it up again here. Yes. So don't miss that, folks. Nope. Don't miss it. Um, but until we get to that, and before we get out of here, does anyone have anything they want to talk about that they've been listening to or watching, perhaps? Well, something I will be listening to and watching, uh, me and Whis- Mrs. Whiskey Obsessor, Jen, will be going to see our favorite band on the show, When Particles Collide. They will be about 20 minutes away from our house here in Delray Beach. Yeah. Um, as of... I would have already passed by the time this gets released, but um, we will go in to see them. I will be putting a full review up, and we'll we'll definitely have a lot of social media interaction on that night. Um, so you can catch a couple songs and some reviews from us, and uh, they'll actually be staying right at our place here. So we'll have some uh, maybe some behind-the-scenes stuff for you. So really much looking forward to that. They are two of the greatest people you will ever meet. They are yes. the best, my very dear friends. I know I've said it before, but I'll continue to say it. They really are. I'm so excited. I'm so excited for you guys. Mm-hmm. So, do you remember a while ago, um, we talked about the Cavalera Conspiracy coming out with another album? Do you remember this? Nope. Nope. So I guess I guess the answer to my next question is nope. I was going to ask if you guys have listened to any of the Cavalera conspiracy, and I guess the answer is nope. So what um, was that? I don't remember. Okay, that. well let's. It was a news segment. Let's just do a just quick thing. Um, <laughs> the Cavalera conspiracy is obviously um, Max and Igor's new band. Well, they're, it's not new anymore. Actually, um, I think they originally formed in like two thousand seven. It's the first project they did together after Sepultura, after Max left oh, Sepultura. Yeah. Um, so they put out a new album recently. And when I say recently, I have a feeling that I'm a little bit behind the times. But I remember them talking about it on, um, yeah, it was 2017 that Psychosis came out. So I think we talked about it like early on uh, in the podcast yeah. on the news. Anyway, I've been listening to a lot of it. And I, someone mentioned it, and I was like, oh, that's right. I was supposed to go listen to it and see <laughs> see if I like it. And I really, really, really like it. It is very good. So I've been listening to that a lot. I highly right. recommend it. Awesome. I must have missed that that's one. Right. I got to check that out. Yes, definitely check it out. Yeah. That's it for me. As far as myself, nothing really new. Um, I have been continuing to listen to uh, the D. Snyder podcast. He's got some really good interviews, and I'm just looking through his list, and he actually did a recent interview with Lita Ford, and I definitely have to go back and listen to that I one. I listened to that, yep. <clears throat> and what's it called? And Are you ready? I want to talk! I want to talk! <laughs> <laughs> I want so to good. talk! Yeah. And um, I just listened to... Um, one he did with the lead singer of Black Veil Brides, Andy. God, I can't remember his last name, but um, and they were discussing about the Black Veil Brides' latest album, produced by another than Bob Rock. Oh wow! A guy he's, he's still kicking around. Up. Interesting. Yeah, he, Interesting. this guy is like the Dave Pickerel of music producers. Yeah. I yeah. swear. He'll he's probably live with forever. Everybody. Now they're like. Uh... Are they like black metal? 
They're not. No. No. They're like no. melodic. They're very Aren't they like melodic? Melodic. Um, yeah. yeah. They're heavy metal, but they're. Um, you would call them heavy metal. Melo- well, no, they're but they're more black metal. In the early '90s, they would have been considered heavy metal. Um, you just have to listen to them. I call them. I call them melodic metal. That's what I feel. Like Matt, they are. if you've never heard them, you definitely need to listen to them. Oh wait, I think That's I do. Amazing. Wait, hold on. They uh, they had like a concept album, didn't they? Like, um, yes, yes, they did. Yeah, I remember that for some reason. Um, have you did? Oh, Matt, you're wretched you and divi- wretched and divine. Yeah, yes. I've heard. Th- I've heard that. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, they're melodic. Yeah. They're melodic. They've got melodic. a yeah, great yeah. song in the end off that album, which I love. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Matt, did you listen to the Nikki Six podcast with Joan Jett? No. Didn't who said they were going to listen to that? No, it was Lars with Joan Jett. Oh, Lars. No, and I completely forgot that. about it until you just told me here. Okay, because I so. haven't listened to it yet either. Oh. And I wanted to listen to it. Yeah, I might do that after we hang up tonight. And uh, okay. yeah, because I completely—I know I mentioned it. Um, yeah, but I completely forgot curious. about it. Yeah, because as we're preparing to talk about Joan Jett on Good, um, pretty good for a girl. You know, I'm re- doing a ton of research on Joan Jett and the Runaways, and I was curious to see what you thought of that because I'm not going to listen to Lars's fucking podcast unless it's something really useful for me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you secretly loved Lars. Shut up. Well, I mean, you know, <laughs> everything everything we say about him, I mean, he does actually, and I've watched a few of his episodes, he does host a good podcast, he asks good questions. I know, we're, you know, we're in he's been in the business. He's been in the business for a long Lars. time, so he knows, you know, mm-hmm. what to ask and, and stuff like yeah. that, so. Yeah, that's why peer-to-peer podcasts are so interesting. Oh, yeah. They ask far like, better he questions. Had, he had, um... The first one I ever saw with him was he had Dave Grohl on, and that was probably two hours of the funniest podcast I've ever heard, because Dave Grohl's a funny guy in yes. general. Yeah. All right, Matt. That's it. We're going to listen to a little snippet. I just thought it would be fitting. We've got to play a Runaway song tonight. And then will you take us out of here? Cool. I will. Oh, yeah. So, to all of our listeners, our fellow Metal Rock and Whiskey Obsessors, we value your opinions and your feedback. Find us on Instagram at Metal Rock Whiskey. Send us your love, your likes. Please share your thoughts, reviews, questions, suggestions, concerns, and comments about the show. You can also follow us individually on Instagram. Yours truly, at the Whiskey Obsessor. That is Whiskey. Of course, save the E. Ed. As you're mocking me. As always. <laughs> <laughs> they can find me on Instagram at Bourbon Geek. Sailor. I'm Sailor Retro on all of the internets. And while Jake is away doing whatever the fuck he's doing, because now we're not sure, you can find him at Bourbon Spartan on Instagram. And as Jake would usually say, this was a lot of fun, guys. Hope you all enjoyed it as much as we did. But now my glass is empty and it's time to go. Be sure to tip your waitress. We're out. And then I normally say, fuck you, Lars. Later, everyone. Adios.